Welcome here, everybody. My name is Tom Dick. I'm the pastor of junior high students here at Southland. Today I'm going to be preaching part three of a three-year message series that I've been doing. <laughs> you may want to pick up the uh, messages that I did last March and last April to find out what I'm talking about today. They always ask me to teach on apologetics, so I'm teaching on apologetics again today. But before I do that, I want to tell you about the proudest day of my life in recent memory, okay? Uh, we have three children. We have a 17-year-old daughter. I'm not going to explain how that works. It just does. We have a 17-year-old daughter, and we have a 10-year-old son and a 5-year-old son. Our 17-year-old daughter, we've established she's smart, okay? She's on a roll. She's at SCHS. She's brilliant, okay? All that stuff. It doesn't so much involve her. I just wanted to make sure that everybody knows that she's incredibly smart as well, Okay? But it has to do, you know, with the younger kids, you're never quite sure if they're smart until they grow up, right? So you kind of bite your fingernails until you have a moment to prove it. And I had that moment uh, last fall, maybe in November, December, where I was, uh, in one day, I, I was experienced the brilliance of both my youngest children. And uh, Mal, uh, Seth that day, who's in kindergarten, came to me and he said, Daddy, ask me what 11 plus 17 is. So I did, and he told me, and I thought, well, that's not so amazing, because you've just been sitting in the washroom figuring that out. So I asked him several more questions, and he could figure them all out in his head. I was just blown away. So I thought, this is amazing. I need to now teach him the rules of carrying numbers in mathematics, which I did. And he got it, and for the next week or two, all I was doing every evening was writing out equations for him to figure out, and we would celebrate together his brilliance. That is grade three math. He's in grade kindergarten. Just incredible. Okay, but then, same night, same night, I was sitting on the couch with my son Malachi, who's in grade five. And I had that day been at a website called kidswithoutgod.org. It's a website that's been set up by the Humanist Society of America in order to help kids and encourage them that they can actually live good lives without having to believe in the fairy tale of Jesus. And so I was there and I was reading it, and it's silly. Uh, and they had this, they had this uh, little mascot that they've written a children's story about called Darwin the Dog, who teaches kids about how great it is to not believe in God. And I, I laughed when I read one of the pages because, well, I'm going to show it to you in a second. But I brought it home and Malachi got it. So here's Darwin the Dog. Here's Darwin the Dog. There we go. <laughs> Darwin loves using his imagination. But he only believes in things that he can see in the real world. Things like friendship and being nice and learning. Now, a lot of you aren't laughing yet, but you will. <laughs> Maybe, once you realize that my 10-year-old figured out the joke here. Um, he, he looked at me and he says, Daddy, but you can't see friendship or being nice or learning. <laughs> and I went, yes! You are brilliant. You're my son. Ah, I love that. The youngest one gets his math skills from his mother, but apologetics, that comes from me, and that feels good. Now, this is bombarding our children. Now, they're not going to that site necessarily, but the ones who are, who are, are being filled with this garbage. It's lies. It doesn't even make sense. It doesn't even make sense. But just in case you thought you adults were... Uh, immune or weren't being exposed to this type of thing, I actually found a Super Bowl ad. I don't watch the Super Bowl. I watch YouTube after the Super Bowl to watch the commercials. <laughs> and I found a Super Bowl ad that literally screams um, lies at you. Now, I'm going to show it to you, and this may be the first time a Super Bowl ad has ever been shown in a Southland service, and it may very well be the last, depending on how this goes. Um, <laughs> So just watch for it, and along the way, you're going to agree with what they're saying. You're going to want to believe it, and then listen for the catch or for the, for the punchline at the end. All right. To the curious, the inquisitive, the seekers of knowledge, to the ones who just want to know about life, about the universe, about yourself. Not cute questions, big questions, ones that matter. To the rebels, the artists, the free thinkers, and the innovators who care less about labels and more about truth. Who believe nonconformity is more than a bumper sticker. That knowledge is more than words on a page. You're young, you're old, you're powerful beyond measure, and the fuel of that power is not magic or mysticism, but knowledge. The things you see, the things you feel, the things you know to be true. Sure. 
without you. Let him. Dare to think for yourself, to look for yourself, to make up your own mind. Because in the eternal debate for answers, the one thing that's true is what's true for you. Right. Now, how many of you know how much it costs to uh, create a Super Bowl ad? Eight million. Eight million dollars to show that just once during the Super Bowl so that they can tell you an eight million dollar lie. Think freely. Rebel against the system. Don't conform. Just join our cult and we'll tell you what truth really is, which is that you can't know what truth really is. <laughs> you see, from the young to the old, we're bombarded by messages of how to interpret reality. There are more evangelists out there than Donovan Friesen. How do we know what is true and what isn't? It was that very question in 2009 that led me to a crisis of faith. It wasn't a crisis of belief in God. It was more of a crisis about God. It was a crisis of faith in the foundational ideas that can give you confidence in God. Now, I think it's possible that every time I preach to adults that I mention this story, this crisis of faith in 2009. And that's only because Pastor Ray wants to recoup some of the money he spent on me buying books while I was having my crisis of faith. But today... I want to show you the linchpin argument that kept me safe during my questioning. And I think you may be surprised at what ultimately saved me from intellectual suicide. But before we do that, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to tell you a story. Jesus, I pray that now you would open our minds to understand and our hearts to feel, so that we would know how great you are and how great you love us. Father, I pray that we would learn and we would come in contact with your Holy Spirit today. Amen. You may want to, in preparation for the end of this story, open up your Bibles to Acts 9 and just keep your finger in the page there, and uh, we'll get to there in uh, Acts 9 in just a moment. In those uncertain and tenuous days of the first church, a man arose from beneath the ranks of the apostles whose spirit, whose, whose, those powerful and spirit-filled men who were the authoritative fathers of the way, and became the first non-apostolic individual of whom the Bible reports did signs and wonders. The man was brilliant and powerful, equally wise and gentle, with, as they say, a face of an angel. However, the account of Acts tells us that while traveling around the countryside, this man, Stephen, found himself in a synagogue filled with Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those of Cilicia and Asia. It was a zealous Jewish crowd. And he was the kind of man who, if left unwatched, would advocate for this new religious sect that was growing in Jerusalem. And that was a very dangerous and unattractive prospect for the Jewish elite, the religious leaders. So lies were spread, and a false case was assembled against him. Stephen was summarily brought before the austere council of 70, the Sanhedrin and the high priest of Yahweh. This man was familiar with the way, as well as their presumably dead leader, Jesus of Nazareth, this was the same high priest who had sent Jesus to the cross. While being questioned on a number of accusations, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, launched into an eloquent summary of the history of the Jewish people, starting with Abraham and God's covenant to the patriarchs, moving into Israel's captivity in Egypt and the redemption from slavery, their exodus through the wilderness, their holy war in Canaan, and an account of King David and Solomon, but concluded his sermon with this accusatory summary. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They even killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels, and yet you have not kept it. So the Jews killed Stephen beating him to death with stones. And presiding over this gory, an entirely illegal assassination was a man named Saul of Tarsus, one of the Cilicians who had been at the synagogue that fateful day. The death of Stephen marked the beginning of a great persecution against the followers of Jesus, and this Saul, now with the blessing of the Sanhedrin, ran the show. Saul was a devout Jew, but being born in the city of Tarsus in the Roman province of Cilicia was afforded all the luxuries of Roman citizenship. 
When Saul was old enough, he went to Jerusalem to enter into the ministry to study under the great Jewish teacher Gamaliel. To be a rabbi was to be a lawyer, a teacher, and a minister all rolled into one, and Saul was well suited for the job. The Scottish preacher, James Stalker, in his little book, The Life of St. Paul, Saul became Paul, said of him, Paul was a born thinker. His mind was majestic breath and forth force. He was a restlessly busy, never able to leave any object with it until it had pursued it back to its remotest causes and forward into all its consequences. And yet, for all his brilliance, Saul of Tarsus, student of the great Gamaliel, had fallen into the same trap that Jesus accused the Pharisees, the religious leaders of, in John 5, verse 39, where he said, You pour over the Scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, yet they testify about me. And yet you are not willing to come to me so that you would have life. It was not Saul's intellect that led him to a belief in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And we read the story of his conversion in Acts 9. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him, saying, around him, Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? He said. I am Jesus, the one you were persecuting, he replied. But get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound but seeing no one. Then Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he said. Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas and ask for the man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so he might regain his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But then the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias left and entered the house. Then he placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road while you were traveling has sent me so that you can regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once, something like scales fell from his eyes. Paul regained his sight and he got up and was baptized. And that is the summary of the conversion of the great Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus, who became the first and greatest missionary of the early church. It was not his intellect that led him to his conversion. It was an experience with the living Christ. Now, if you know me, you know that I am thoroughly in love with philosophy and particularly apologetics. There are all sorts of ways that you can think about evidence for the existence of God, many different ways. There's a whole stream of, of categories that fall under a natural theology. These are things such as the cosmological argument or argument that the, the nothing comes, uh, something doesn't come from nothing. There must have been something before creation. It's an argument for God at the beginning of the universe. Then there's the teleological argument, argument from the fine-tuning of the universe to support human life. Then there's the moral argument. That's an argument for a personal embodied good from which all mankind has a general understanding of what is appropriate and what is not. Then you can turn to the history of Israel if you need more evidence or the uniqueness of the life of Jesus. You can look at the fulfilled prophecy in the Bible. And there's many other ways that you can find evidence for the existence of God. But one of the most frustrating things with those and other intellectual arguments is that although... 
They aren't particularly complicated to understand. For every sound argument you can give, a skeptic can think of some obscure, uh, minute little counterpoint that can actually throw your whole argument into chaos because you haven't given that particular thought any attention. Those types of people and arguments can wreak havoc on one's faith. How do you answer skeptics who know these little details? You know, the interesting thing to me is that all the time I was asking questions about aspects of my faith, the intellectual arguments are not what kept me safe. You know what did? My previous spiritual experiences with Jesus did, and they still do. Did you know that even last week while I was preparing for this message, I was back on that site, kidswithoutgod.org, looking at the teenage uh, part, and they had a video there, and this video was well done. It was polished and smooth and slick, and it it went on for about eight or nine minutes, and as I was watching it, I could just feel these questions rising up and this old dread that I recognized, saying, thinking, oh man, how am I going to answer these questions? But as I was watching, all I did was I backed up, and I said, oh, but wait a second. Jesus met me there. He spoke to me here. I saw him heal there. And all of that dread just passed right out. And I knew that if I gave it enough time, I would be enough to actually not only create or think of arguments against the video, but that I would actually have a stronger faith because of my spiritual experiences. The reality is that for all the intellectual work that is done, for all the scripture you may have studied, if you don't know Jesus experientially, you don't know Jesus. In truth, your spiritual experiences might be the thing that keep you safe when you encounter some questions that you don't yet have an answer for. Now, there's a very big difference between evidence and proof. To my knowledge, there isn't even such a thing as proof for the existence of God. Ultimately, experience must be held in concert with other lines of reasoning. This is because our experiences, by definition, are subjective. It means that you can't prove them logically. For example, you can't prove objectively or logically that I had a dream last night. Can't do it. But I know that I had a dream. Spiritual experiences do actually fall under a specific category of philosophy, though. And just because they're subjective, it doesn't mean they're weak arguments. You may have trouble proving to a skeptic that God spoke to you, but he'll have just as much trouble proving that God didn't. Experience belongs to a type of reasoning that falls under the category called basic beliefs. These are the beliefs that you can't prove, but they lay the foundation for every other argument to stand on. So when a person comes to church and senses something supernatural, this is a subjective spiritual experience, but it becomes the foundation of the pursuit of truth. They say, something happened to me at church. I've got to figure out what it was, how it makes sense in the real world. And this is completely reasonable. There's four laws. It fits into the laws of logic, actually. There's four laws of logic. I love them all. I love reading books on logic. I don't very much because I know them, so I shouldn't spend time there. But I love laws of logic, okay? That makes me weird. Tough. You're not married to me. <laughs> it is tough for my wife. The fourth law of logic is called the law of rational inference. What does that mean? It means that you can reasonably trust a conclusion if there is a body of evidence leading up to that conclusion. That's how courts work. You can't prove those things that happen in court, and yet you put the evidence together, and you, 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 all, our entire court system is based on the law of rational inference. So how can I explain this to you? I like to use a little illustration from my, from my life. Um, I grew up on a chicken farm. Now, for those of you who know anything about chickens, you know that chickens smell a little worse than dairy and a little better than hogs, but they still smell. And yes, hog farmers, chickens smell better than your pigs. <laughs> now, my grandpa used to live on the same farm as we did. And we could tell if he had been in the chicken barn. Now, how could we tell if he had been in the chicken barn? There's a few things that we could examine. For example, there might be a line of, of galosh prints, not boots, galoshes, from his house to the barn. And you would look at them and you'd say, those are grandpa's galoshes. 
And then you would uh, go into the barn and you'd see where you would record your name and how many eggs you gathered. I always put my name there because I got paid. My grandpa didn't care about getting paid, so he would always leave the name part blank and he'd write down how many eggs he gathered. So, ah, I think grandpa's been here. But the, the clinch... The clincher in this argument, or the idea that Grandpa had been in the barn, was if you went into the chicken barn, and over the smell of ammonia, you could smell Old Spice. (laughs) You knew he had been there. You just knew he had been there. Now, did you know that just this week, I watched a debate between a brilliant Christian philosopher and a somewhat brilliant atheist... And the atheist actually said that there is no way that you can prove that the past exists. So to him, I could tell this story. I could tell great memories about how Grandpa used to go into the barn. We could see the boot tracks. We could see the, the, the missing name by the eggs. We could talk about the old spice that rose above the stench. But he could turn around and say, hogwash. All of the past is just an illusion. He could do that. How do you prove that we're not living in the matrix. How do you prove it? How do you prove that the past is real? How do you do it? You know how? You can't. But it becomes one of the basic beliefs without which everything else becomes absurd. Even the atheist admitted everything is absurd based on this. Everything is absurd, but he says there's no God, so I guess it's absurd. I look at it and I go, what are you talking about? Put the foundation in there and you have a perfectly good philosophical argument. It's not absurd. You just need God but he won't do it. That basic belief, that basic belief that the past is real, that is a basic belief. And did you know that when you look in the uh, the Encyclopedia of Apologetics, it says that your experience with God is also a basic belief. It's one of those things you can't prove, but it's upon which it's just a given. It's upon which every other intellectual argument stands and rests. So for those of you who are who are more of the uh, intellectual mind, just know that even though we talk about experience, it fits well into a philosophical worldview. So in short, when we learn to think properly about the intellectual arguments about the existence of God, then our personal experiences with him shore up our faith and they give us tremendous confidence. They give us tremendous confidence. And you know the Christian faith It was not meant to stay as an intellectual exercise. It was not meant to reside in your head where it's just a pattern of thoughts. Christianity was meant to be experienced. John talks about this in 1 John, and I love 1 John. I just love it. He says here, listen to this. He says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was revealed, and we have seen it. We testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. And what we have seen and heard, we also declare to you. Why? So that you may have fellowship along with us. Fellowship with the word of life along with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is so important You can actually, I mean, I'm totally jealous of John. John got to interact and touch and see the the miracles and Jesus as a person in ways that we cannot. But they're saying here that those experiences can go forward into the future, even into the lives of those who didn't walk with him. He's saying we can fellowship along with him based on their testimony. It's what Apostle Alex said last week. He said, you can fellowship with the word. There is an interaction, a spiritual experience that you can have with the word of life. It's available to you even right now. And that's incredible. What an amazing privilege God has given us. What amazing privilege. And, you know, you wouldn't expect anything less from a personal God. You know, this experience, as you sit and worship, it could be that, you know, that chill that runs up your spine. It could be that simple. Or it could be as profound as having a dramatic interaction with Jesus. I actually had, I've had friends who have encountered Jesus in the hospital room where he healed them. You know, my neighbor, when she gave her heart to Christ, you know how she described it? She said, I just feel full. I just feel full. It's like she said, I've eaten a meal. She had just come back from the Franklin Grand Crusade in Winnipeg. It could be very simple as well. 
You know, the students that come back from encounter, there's one thing that we hear over and over again. You know what they say? They say, it's weird, but after confessing my sins, I feel physically lighter. You see, there's a spiritual experience of confession that actually lifts a weight of, uh, of guilt off your shoulders. And by the way, junior high students, encounter is coming up again. Adults, go on an encounter. These things are important. They physically change your experience with the living God. And an experience could be a prophetic word or a dream even. I have one particular, um, I have one particular set of, of prophetic words that's been spoken to me that is very, very meaningful. So I'll use it as an illustration. When I was a kid, my favorite story was Gideon. Now, I always read Gideon in the picture Bible. So this is my picture from the picture Bible. Gideon looks like my dad when he got married. not a good thing, Gideon. But anyways, whenever, whenever I tell the story of Gideon to, in, to any audience, anywhere, I always tell it remembering, you know, rock star 80s Gideon in the back of my head. He's always there with his mustache. And I describe it like that, you know, that's how I tell the story. I've always loved Gideon. And the reason I love Gideon is because even as a small child, I asked the same questions that Gideon asked. I asked the same ones. I asked, how do you know? Give me proof. Put a fleece out. You know, all these things. So uh, I, have this, I have this love of the story of Gideon. And in 2006, I had the chance to go down to Baton Rouge with Pastor Chris Dirksen and Donovan. And we were at a, a pastor's conference down there with a small group of pastors, and we got to know um, some amazing guys down there at World Beth, uh, Bethany World Prayer Center. And there, during one of the prayer times, uh, Pastor Joel Stockstill, he came and he touched me. And he's just praying over us, and, and he touched me with his foot like this. And, and then he came to me later, and he says, you know, when I, when I touched you, the Lord gave me a prophetic word for you. He said, the prophetic word is this, you are like Gideon. He says, in fact, when the angel of the Lord comes to visit Gideon underneath the tree, in Judges 6, 13, Gideon asks of the angel, he says, Sir, if God is among us, then where are all the miracles our ancestors have asked us about? He said, you have asked that question just like Gideon, haven't you? I said, oh, that's my whole life. God, if you're so big and real, where are all the miracles we read about? Where are they? I was always asking that question. I was, that was one of the reasons I, I didn't become a Christian earlier as a teenager, was because I, I said, where are all the miracles? But that's not the end of it. I was on an encounter, my second encounter in 2008. And uh, I, was, uh, I was praying with Stefan one evening. And I saw I was a mess of snot and tears, you know, kind of a disaster. And I was praying with Stefan. And all at once, we're, we're working through some stuff. And Stefan looks at me and he goes, you know, I just have a picture I want to share with you. He says, I have a picture of Gideon sitting under the tree in, uh, in Judges. And I went, you said, What? And it just opened up my heart to receive exactly what God wanted to do in my life that day. Incredible. Incredible what these experiences do. And what would you expect? Would you expect any less from a personal God who loves you and loves community? No, of course not. This is the expected outcome. And the result is a deeper confidence in our faith. So, what are some of the ways that we can actually, what are some things we can do to have an experience or to get confidence in our faith. In other words, what are the benefits of a personal experience with, Genesis, uh, with Jesus? Not Genesis, with Jesus. What are the personal benefits of an experience with Jesus? The first thing is this. I'll give you three. The first is personal experience silences our critics, or at least it makes them pause to think. That's what we would hope for. It silences or makes our critics pause to think. For the skeptic, and I have met many skeptics, okay? You know, it's very cruel what they do to me here at this church. They make me preach once a year, and then they say, preach in apologetics, so that for 12 months afterwards, you can have all these crazy people emailing you all their big questions, right? Yeah, thank you. Uh, so please, crazy people, email me. But these skeptics, they want to go out for coffee with me so that they can prove that what I believe is wrong. And you know, we get into these long arguments, and I'm sure you've had them with, uh, with uh, non-Christian uh, people and that sort of thing. And eventually, you come to an impasse, right? Because, and this, it always happens. And I say this, look, skeptic, friend, let me throw you a bone here. I will admit, on this side, there are brilliant 
atheists. I mean, there are brilliant atheist philosophers out there. They have their doctorates and all this stuff. They write books. They are well-read. They know their Bibles. They're brilliant, okay? Then we have somewhat more brilliant Christian philosophers, but they're also brilliant. And if the person there is also a little bit charitable, they'll say, okay, there are some smart Christians, okay? And then I say, look, these two never seem to agree, and yet they're both very smart and intelligent. What are we going to do about it? I don't know. Well, let me suggest something. The way I change the balance of power is this. I present a challenge. I say, I have a red prayer binder. It was the, the, one of my first prayer binders, and this one particular entry comes from August 10th, 2004. On August 10th, 2004, I had a dream. In that dream, there were three couples. When I woke up, my philosophy with dreams is, God, if it's important, remind me. And he did. So I wrote it down. And then I did listening prayer. God, what could this possibly mean? These three couples are on this stone wall in my dream. It's very simple. What could it mean? I got five things that, that God said were going to happen as a result of this dream. Two were going to be, uh, one was going to be engaged, one was going to, ex- uh, and then two were uh, grown-ups. Their kids were going to be engaged or be expecting or one would retire and that sort of thing. I wrote five things down, Okay. I remember where I was the day that I heard that the fifth thing had just come true. I remember. I was at the Niverville Fair, and I was walking down the road, and somebody said, hey, did you hear so-and-so was expecting? And I stopped dead in my tracks, because I, and I just worshiped God. Because right there, I remembered the dream I'd had 10 months earlier. God, that's amazing. That is just amazing. And uh, my mom, I told her that, and she said, Tom, why do, you, why do you think God gave you a dream like that? And I said, you know what? I can think of only a couple things. One is either God wants to see if he can trust me with words like this. I don't know whether I'm going to write them down, pray about them, that sort of thing. But I said, I think there's a more powerful thing going on here. I think God wants me to know that I can trust him. I, I just think that's what it's about. I'd never tell them, right? I'd never go up to someone and say, I know you're going to have a baby. That is a bad idea. That's red zone. Don't go there, right? We don't do that. So I don't tell my friend, I call him up, so I hear you're getting engaged. No, what? That's weird. Don't do that. Why would he tell you something that's just a secret? To pray about? To prove that he's real? Perhaps. So I present this to the skeptic. What do you do? Because like it or not, skeptic, you have to make sense of my world, uh, of my experience in your worldview. And so they try. Some of them change the subject. I've actually had people completely ignore the story and the question and go on to something else. And I don't let them do that, but they will try. (laughs) I say, you have three options as to what is happening here. It might be a phenomenal coincidence. I mean, it could happen, right? That I have a dream, there's three people, five things happen. I think about it the next day. I write it down 10 months later. Boom. That's amazing. What a coincidence. But it could happen. Okay? I might be lying. That's true, too. Um, I do lie from time to time, usually to my kids, um, and they're starting to pick up on it. But I don't usually lie in conversations like this because it hurts my credibility. So, and what's great about that is, what's great about that is the, the closer the person is to me relationally, the harder it is for me, to, for them to admit that, that it's a lie. So, oh, no. So that leaves one, one option. I'm telling the truth. Change the subject. What do they do? You see, our experience with Jesus silences our critics. Gives you confidence. You know, in Acts 11, the Apostle Paul, he's defending the fact that the Holy Spirit just descended on the Gentiles. This was unheard of. The Messiah was a Jewish Messiah coming to save a Jewish people. They did not think that he was coming to save the Gentiles. They, did, they missed that entirely. But Peter has a subjective spiritual experience in the form of a vision. You know this one. He's on top of the roof praying and goes into a trance and, uh, and sees a sheet lowered three times with unclean food. He's told to eat, but he doesn't want to. Happens three times. Then he goes to another town. And in that place, he leads all these Gentiles to Christ. And when they come to become Christians, the Holy Spirit descends on them and they speak in tongues in a spiritual language. Okay? Two subjective experiences, essentially. Except there was another vision in there as well to the Gentile. And he comes back, and I mean, Peter is raked over the coals by the church leadership in Jerusalem. 
They're like, this is very difficult to understand, Peter. Like, this is not what we read. This is not what we understand. This is a departure from what we expected to be the norm. They were really, really hard on the guy. You know what Peter's response is? No, no, it's okay. I had a vision in response to another guy's vision, and they spoke in tongues. It's all good. And they're like, praise the Lord. The Holy Spirit has come upon the Gentiles. Three subjective experiences, and that was all the proof they needed. That's remarkable. That's completely remarkable. By the way, whether you're a skeptic in the church or a skeptic who's an atheist, experience has the same power. Experience has the same power. Number two, another reason we need experience is personal experience is where we get healed. Personal experience is where we get healed. You know, I can sit in my office, and I've done this so many times. A beautiful, young, you know, 13-year-old girl is in there. Just the, 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 the junk of life pouring out of her. Just hates herself, maybe cuts herself. Just, just doesn't get it all. And I sit there, and I say, do you know Jesus? Yes, I know Jesus. Do you know that he loves you? Oh, I know he loves me more than anything in the world. I read them Psalm 139. I give them all these words to think about. And it takes forever. And they leave my office after hearing all these promises, all this stuff. They agree with all of it. And they go back and they feel they hate themselves. They don't look at themselves in the mirror. It's, it's, it's nonsense. I sit down with the same girl and I say, Lord Jesus, what do you want to say? He says, let me show you a memory. When you were six, your dad called you ugly. He didn't mean it, but you believed it. Let me set you free from that. She leaves my office a different person. How is that? How does that make sense? Jesus meets us in these experiences. You know, memory is incredibly powerful. When you're walking down a road and you, or in, a, in the woods and you see a stick lying there and you're afraid of snakes, your first thought is not, hmm, I wonder what that is. That looks like it could be a rope. I wonder how a rope got here. Maybe it fell from an airplane. I don't know. You know, like you don't do those things. You don't have this intellectual conversation with yourself trying to assess this thing that's lying on the path. You go, there's a snake here. I am freaking out. I must go. You climb a tree. You, you jump on your husband. Whatever it is. Like, <laughs> your memories are very powerful. They're so powerful. I, I once was sitting in a, in a subway in London. I was coming back from Bible school and uh, London, England. And I was sitting in the tube and all of a sudden this smell hit me and I was just like, poof, so homesick couldn't figure it out. And then you and I realized that smell smelled exactly like my best friend's house. And it just made me so homesick. I know, isn't that precious? Okay. I mean, I was just like, I just want to go home. And I was, so that was good. And, uh, but, you know, that I have, like, that's the power of, like, just smell memories and stuff like that. that you have sound memories. Like, for instance, if I hear, like, they're, they're my, the Heinrichs's, there are some Heinrichs who go to church here. Not the nice ones, the other ones. Rachel Heinrichs and her sister Bonnie Coop. They're the mean ones. They had a wiener dog named Herbie. I am terrified of wiener dogs. And they would unleash Herbie the wiener dog on me every time I came over as a child. And I can be walking around town. I'm, a, I'm, I'm an adult. And I can hear a yappy little wiener dog and just go crumple into a fetal position because Herbie is coming to get me because of the Heinrichs. Heinrichs. I hope they're here. <laughs> but that's the power of fear and historical memories. But now that's silly. You know what? God set me free. God set me free in an instant like that. One time I was meeting with a pastor in Winnipeg, and there, was a, uh, there had been a pattern of controlling behavior in my life. It had been eight or nine years or something like that. And when, when Jesus, it, I, it, he took me to the lie that I believed. It was that I'm powerless and out of control of my own life. And when Jesus spoke truth to that lie, do you know that the next day my life was different like that? Boom. Different. Do you think I had some confidence in my faith? Of course. Do you doubt... That God is for real? You know what I would suggest? I challenge you. Go for personal ministry. Go with an open mind and a prepared spirit, asking God for the good gifts that he wants to give his children, and watch as he sets you free. He won't set you free intellectually. He'll set you free, free experientially, and it's much more powerful. You know what? In this great new building, you, should, you know what part of the building should wear out the fastest? The carpet between those doors and the prayer room. There should be a, a trail beaten in the carpet there from people going there for after-service prayer every single weekend. 
Because that's where you take the stuff that you're learning in your brain in here and you go and you present it to God and you say, God, I have this conviction. And then he gives you, he meets you in an experience. That should be the most beaten trail in this whole, in this whole building. And you know what it leads to? Incredible confidence. Thirdly, personal experience is where Jesus reveals our calling. I just don't know how you can discover the specific call or mission that God has for your life intellectually. I don't know how you can do it. You might discover what you want to do. You might weigh the pros and cons of what you think God is trying to ask or is asking you to do. But in order to know actually what he wants you to do, you need to know God. You need to listen to him. You need a spiritual experience with Jesus. You know, the apostles were constantly having dreams that revealed the direction they were supposed to take. They made, Chris, they made critical, history-altering decisions based on these highly subjective spiritual experiences. Changed the course of history because it says in Acts, it seemed good to us. Wow. I've had some dreams. The spring after I became a youth pastor, in 2002 I became a pastor, and then in 2003 I had a dream. And the dream became so profound and so important to me that I painted it. So I have this painting. It's not one of my best paintings. It's not a big painting. In this dream, I went all around uh, the, the islands and such like that. But the, 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 essentially, what God told me was, he said, Tom, you're going to be part of a large multicultural ministry. There were lots of little boats that I didn't paint in the water. They were distracted by fishing and, and whaling and that sort of stuff. But I was on the ship, the brown one, and there was this observation deck on the bottom. And there were all sorts of people from all different nations of the earth. And God said, you will not be distracted by the little stuff in the water. You're headed straight towards the city on a hill. He said, Tom, you are going to be part of a large multicultural ministry one day that's headed towards the city on the hill. And did you know that when Southland called and offered me a job here, one of my first questions of the Holy Spirit was, um, okay, large multicultural ministry, Steinbeck. <laughs> I don't understand how that works. And you know what's amazing? This church is far more multicultural and becoming far more multicultural than my church in good old multicultural Winnipeg. God knows. And you know what else is interesting? Because the stakes are so high. The stakes are very, very high when, you, when you're up, picking up and leaving a city for another place, especially Steinbeck. The stakes are high. And um, <laughs> mockery, you know, all that stuff. Um, I said, I need confirmation that this is the place to go. And God had many times since given me dreams with boats that represented my ministry. And so I called up my mentor, Dietrich, in, the, in Winnipeg. He was my mentor at the time. I was driving down Lajamodi. I know exactly where I was. And I said, Dietrich, um, I got an invitation to go and be a pastor in Steinbeck. And uh, I just, no, I didn't even say that. I said, Dietrich, I need confirmation for a big decision I'm about to make. I didn't tell him what, and I didn't tell him where. And do you know what he said, Tom? He says, I'm going to pray for you. He prayed for me on the phone. And uh, he says, Tom, I get the picture of a ship. And it's sailing into calm waters. The horizon is dark. I can't tell what's ahead. But he says, you're leaving troubled waters behind, and you're sailing into calm waters. Hung up the phone, called Pastor Ray. I accept. <laughs> <laughs> Confirmation. Isn't that incredible? Now, you'll notice that there are th these, in these three reasons, I use one word, two words over and over again. Personal experience. And that word, personal, is very critical. You cannot ride the coattails of someone else's experience. You can't. When it comes to the experience of Jesus, we expect that the experience of others will accomplish these benefits for us, and they don't. You know, I hear this all the time with people who are saying, oh, I know that God is real. I read in my charismatic magazine that God raised someone to, from the dead in Africa. And you go, wow, that's incredible. Please don't ever talk about that in the coffee shop because you're going to get laughed out of the building. Now, if you've been raised from the dead, that's awesome. <laughs> Personal experience. It doesn't work to quote stories of what the Holy Spirit is doing around the world. That doesn't work. You need to have an experience with the living God. You need an experience. You hear about the way that people are set free in personal ministry, but you never go. You hear about how people receive their calling from the Lord in dreams and visions, but you never listen. 
You need a personal experience. You might be inspired by what those people, by the stories that you hear, you might be inspired. But inspiration does not keep you safe in a moment of questioning. Inspiration does not keep you safe in a moment of questioning. You have to know it for yourself to be safe. This is really critical. Now, I know that when you preach a message like this, it's all about subjective and experience and emotions, and you you worry, right? There's often objections to this kind of message. So let me just address three of them in closing. First objection you might have heard. I haven't had a crazy spiritual experience. Are you saying I'm not a Christian? No, that's not at all what I'm saying. I was asked this very question. In a, I was teaching in a world religions class uh, in a public school, local, local uh, school, high school, a few months ago. And one of the students raised his hands, and he was taking issue with some of the experiences that we have here at Southland. He said, are you telling me that God doesn't love my church because we don't have it? No, I'm not saying that at all. But you know what? If you don't open the door for the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not going to come in. And a lot of churches have simply just not opened the door. It's not that they're not Christians, but their churches are emptying out because one of the main indicators that a kid is going to actually stay with God after they turn 18, you know what it is? Is a spiritual experience. Don't wonder why people are leaving the church if you don't open the doors to the Holy Spirit so that he can come in and actually do something. So I think some people are just not open to the experience. They're still Christians, but they're not open. Jesus experienced that in his hometown. He could not do any miracles among his own family and friends. Remarkable. I think, on the other hand, that some people who are Christians experience Jesus, but they don't give him credit for it. I think that's a, that's a problem, too. It's arrogant, actually. I think there are other people who are, just have hard hearts. You, you can present all the evidence you want to some people, they will not accept your Christ because Christ asks more than most people are willing to give. It doesn't matter whether it's true or not. They'll say the past is an illusion. And then I think that another reason that some people don't have crazy experiences is that, is that actually God has a different plan for each one of us to bring us to himself. And some people, it's going to take a dramatic, dramatic conversion on a road to Damascus. And for others, it's going to take the silent voice over many years. I think that's the truth. So no, I'm not saying you're not a Christian if you haven't had an experience. But I am saying you should go for personal ministry where you can experience God. You should go on encounter and you should go on empower so that you have something to stand on. Number two, doesn't this kind of talk lead to wishy-washy emotional faith? Uh, Yeah, it can. It definitely can. But let's say for a minute that you have a powerful experience and Jesus gives you tremendous confidence in him. Let's say you go on to write one of those books that these people write where your picture takes up the whole front cover because it's all about you and your experience. And let's say that the critics jump all over you and you are plastered as the poster child of the wacko Christian movement and you're even raked over the coals by the people who care about you the most. They don't, they haven't experienced what you've experienced, therefore it cannot have happened. The truth is, and this is the truth, who cares? You have had a powerful experience with the living God. Let them say what they want to say. I'll tell you something, Paul had a crazy experience on the road to Damascus. I mean crazy, and he was raked over the coals about it. He was plastered as the poster boy of the wacko Christian movement of the day. And you know what happened? That experience with Jesus was so powerful that he could stand down angry mobs because he knew that should he die, he goes straight to be with his king. That is the power of a spiritual experience. He faced down some of the greatest intellectual minds of history because he had had an experience. So yes, Is it true that if you just go after the experience, that's a problem? Certainly it's an experience. And you know what? One one experience, no matter how powerful it is, probably isn't enough to sustain you. You need to continually pursue Jesus. You need to continually pursue Jesus. You know, is is there a danger in developing a silly faith? Yeah, there's a danger. But you know, if you're married, you don't stop trying to have kids just because you have one crazy one. Right? You keep going until you've reached perfection. I'm the youngest. I'm perfection. (laughs) So be balanced and pursue Jesus. Thirdly, the third objection is this. 
Don't other faiths offer the same sort of spiritual experience? Yeah, they do. Did you know that? Other faiths actually offer a spiritual experience that is even similar to a Christian experience. They do. But do you know what the difference is? They don't offer you salvation. And the point of Christianity is not to have an experience, it's to gain salvation. That's the purpose of Christianity, and that's the difference between us and other faiths. You might have a similar experience, but guess what? We're not actually about the experience. This is how I would explain it. When C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis, he was using this illustration in a different context, but he said, you know what? If you chase a shadow, you'll never catch it. But if you go after the sun, the shadow will follow. And so while it's true that we don't pursue the spiritual experience, which is the shadow, if we pursue the sun, I, I guarantee you the spiritual experience will follow. Pursue Christ at all costs. You will receive salvation and you will receive a relationship with a living God. It'll be amazing. And it'll create a foundation that you can build other arguments upon that will give you a faith worth contending with. You know, this message is not for the skeptic. I've dealt with enough skeptics to know that there's very little I can say. There's very, I don't know the amount of evidence it would take to convince them. But this message is for the genuine seeker. The person who isn't sure but who is curious and open to the truth. For those of you who don't know if this Jesus is quite the real deal, but you sense something within you that you can't quite answer, I would say you need to get to the prayer room immediately. As soon as I'm done praying, beat a path over there. Pray with someone who can help you. And this message is also for those Christians who are bored and dry and doubting. For you, I say, don't give up your pursuit of God's glory. The spiritual encounters that Jesus offers are one of the channels through which we experience his grace. To close, Paul says in Ephesians 3, Though I am the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ Jesus. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had, had kept secret from the beginning. Let's pray. Jesus, endless treasures. I'm convinced, God, that one of the, that the endless treasures are experiences with you. That there is assurance of our salvation. That there is confidence in the face of skepticism. God, I pray that for each person in this room that they would find a way to respond. Whether it's merely standing and worshiping in a new way, or whether it's leaving and going to receive prayer, Whatever is the way that you would like us to respond, I pray for our obedience in it. And Jesus, for those in this room who do not yet know you, I pray that you would now meet them and that you would change them forever and eternity. Amen.